Hello and welcome to this Power the Fight exclusive, a conversation with our CEO Ben Lindsay joined by our ambassador Governor B for Mental Health Awareness Week. They will be discussing men's mental health, grief, faith, juggling life and the impact these things may have on us. Hello, my name is Ben Lindsay. I am CEO and founder of Power the Fight and it is a great pleasure to have one of our ambassadors, Governor B. Introduce yourself, please. I'm going to do this. Yeah, all this. Is that? Is Come that, on. Is that, that East, is that the East London? East London mix with Ghana. I'll see. You've oh. done it well, though. You executed correctly. Thank you. It's all about the click, right? It is. Click's very important. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm Governor B. My mum named me Isaac. I'm a rapper, author, broadcaster, and a proud ambassador of Power to Fight. Not just because I know Ben. He'd actually be the main reason that I wouldn't do it. But I actually believe uh, massively in the work that they're doing. I see the impact and I want more people to see that as well. Appreciate you, bro. Uh, we could get into how we know each other and all the times I've saved your life and all that type of stuff. There's quite you a few stories you in have. the last 10 years, but maybe for another podcast. Um, it's Mental Health Awareness Week, mm. so it's really important that we have people who represent Power to Fight but also understand a lot of the work that we do around well-being and with young people. Why Power to Fight? I mean, there's, I imagine there must be loads of pressure on your time to represent various organisations and charities. Why Power to Fight specifically? And not just because I'm a nice guy and you know me and all that type of stuff and I saved your life. Told me I was yeah, there's obviously various issues that we face in our local communities, in society, in general. And I don't have the time to be a spokesperson or an ambassador for all of them, as important as they may be. But one of the things that has always been close to my heart, probably because of lived experience and also my values, is the issue of youth violence. I grew up in Custom House on an estate, lost my first friend to a stabbing at 15 years old. And in those times, I'm not, I'm not that old, but it was still rare. You'd get fights, you'd get people getting rushed, they might retaliate. Um, but when someone gets stabbed, it was like, wow, like that escalated to a level that no one expected to get to. And here we are around 15 years later in a place where society seems to have desensitized itself to the seriousness of escalating youth violence and for me we can never become desensitized that's dangerous um i think it's sad when anyone loses their life but i think it's it's devastating when it could easily have been prevented and yeah i had the likes of you my youth leader at the local youth club impact me in great ways and that changed the trajectory of my life and i want to play my part in being that person for someone else yeah, that's amazing. And um, it's interesting that you talk about the experience of growing up in, a, in an estate and seeing violence on a like semi-regular basis. Mm. You're a bit older, you're no longer in the end, you, you drink expensive coffee, <laughs> you know. Thank you, you for you, this Cortado. Yeah, it's all right, you're in, you're in leafy areas now. When you look back, what do you think the impact of those experiences of violence has been on your on your life? I think I'm naturally an optimistic person, 
but when you've seen certain things when you know people that have been directly impacted by youth violence when it's come close to your doorstep when I remember for me seeing my first gun at 11 years old takes away some of my innocence and so when I leave my house you make a joke about me being leafy suburbs I'm still not too far away do you know what I mean I think most places in London you'll have nice bits and not so nice bits but when I leave my house I'm always on guard I'm always thinking something could go wrong I'm always on my P's and Q's you never lose that I need to be streetwise I'm a big man now I'm 30 odd I won't tell you the exact age <laughs> but even now if I'm walking through different ends at night I'm like I've got to be careful I don't know what's going to so happen you're telling me you still feel that anxiety and that kind of I suppose we'll use the word fear mm. even though you're a big man now you can drive wherever you want to go no one you're not wanted in any area from, to my knowledge so but you're still feeling that that sense of concern yeah I'll tell you why as well if things were the way they were when I was growing up maybe not but now for various reasons these youths are, are lawless bro and I laugh about it now but I went back to my estate to film something for the BBC and when I pulled up to my road these youngers are looking at me a certain way and I was like yo man grew up here bro I'm one of you lot man relax and anyone can get it bro yeah. and so you can never allow yourself to become so comfortable but it's interesting because I speak to people that didn't grow up in in London and I feel like they might have like irrational fear but they can walk the streets with a confidence that I can't I wouldn't say I'm fearful mm. but I just know that anything could happen it's interesting you say about perception mm. I shared something on my Instagram recently about um, a time when I saw you on I think it was Newsnight yeah and uh, you were talking about violence and drill music and I happened to watch this when I was on holiday in North Wales mm. and it was quite a, a strong piece and they were showing kind of imagery of knives and just people in ballets and all types of stuff and I was saying to my wife at the time at the time she's still my wife <laughs> I was saying to, <laughs> just make that very clear um, I was saying in the location of where we were in Snowden, I was like, oh, this is crazy. Mm. Because obviously coming from London, I'm used to this type of imagery. But then when watching it where it was predominantly white people, I was thinking, wow, this is just a really mad representation of, of young people in London. And what does that really, how does that play out to them? What does it really mm. look like? Um, so for me, I just found it interesting when we talk about perception and the the confusion people sometimes have when they see, and if we're honest, predominantly black hmm. children in the context of violence. How do you kind of navigate that? Particularly when you're doing music, which some could misunderstand as being just yeah. a certain way. I think the way that perception affects me, plays on my mind and makes me anxious is that I often find myself um, compensating. So if I'm on the street walking past someone that doesn't look like me, I'll give like the extra smile so that they know like, I'm not like that. I'm one of the good guys, I'm a friendly person. And I kind of hate myself for that because I shouldn't have to overcompensate um, to prove to someone that I'm not, you know, one of these guys with a belly on and stuff like that. But the interesting f thing about what you said is when we watch, I don't know, Top Boy or see on the news, 
white um, males, young men, ballied up because there are a fair few. I don't think people attribute that to the entire race or the entire gender. But when you're in, I can't remember where you were, Shrewsbury or whatever it was, and people see young black males ballied up, for some reason, that's the image of a young black male across the board. And I don't think that's right. And I think it's important just to clarify that, at least from a power of fight perspective, we don't think blackness or black and brown communities equals violence. Mm. And we believe that there's a disproportionate effect on black and brown communities, particularly in a London context, but that wouldn't necessarily be in other contexts across the country. Mm. But since it is Mental Health Awareness Week, and I think you, we've touched on it, what do you think are the specific pressure points for anxiety and mental health for black and brown children? Mm. Both of us at one point with black and brown kids. But do you think there's something specific? Because it's interesting what you said about changing your posture depending on who's walking towards you. Yeah. And I've had conversations with my male friends about a similar thing. Oh, let me not look at my, look too big mm. yeah. when I run and I'm running and I'm, I'm just, you know, I'm looking at like Mr. Motivator's <laughs> micro and all that. I'm like, well, let, let me wear the brightest stuff so people don't feel like I'm going to rob them and all that type of stuff. But yeah. the mental toil, for me personally, I'm like, this is long. Why can't I just be, yeah. if I want to wear a tracksuit, why is that like, can be seen as yeah. intimidating. So you hit the nail on the head. I think you just want to be, I think for young black and brown people, a lot of anxiety comes from, especially now, I can only speak from a London perspective and someone that lives in London that travels outside of London. Because it's so diverse, it's such a melting pot, you're often in uh, situations that you maybe didn't grow up in. Um, and when you feel like you can't be yourself, it's just a lot of effort. When you have to think about how you're being perceived, it's just a lot of mental strain. When you're constantly having to second guess, you know, I've got dreads, I'm going to Parliament today. Should I have my hair in a ponytail? Because it's less scary yeah, for those I kind of... same <laughs> issue, man. It's like, what should I do with my hair today? But yeah. Do you know what I mean? And you have to get real. to a certain level of confidence in yourself to think, but I know what everyone else thinks. I'm just gonna be me. But we're talking about young people um, with mental health struggles. These are the things that they have to think about, man. Imagine have every decision you make having to think twice. One from your own personal perspective and one from the person who's gonna be yeah. interacting with you. That's effort. But also, so we're talking maybe on, a, on an individual kind of interpersonal level. Hmm. I think there's something quite collective like the collective trauma young people, at least the young people we work with, mm. deal with. So you might hear of an act of violence and then it's spread on social media. Yeah. And just the, the amount of imagery that young people kind of deal with, we definitely see that level of anxiety is underestimated with the amount of things that people are, mm. are seeing. One of the things which haven't known you for so long, um, the, the the passing of your of your dad, mm. um, just walking with you through that, and then consequently the album which came from that. I suppose that is one example of how I was able to kind of watch how you would deal with quite a pressurized situation. Mm. 
Um, do you want to just talk a little bit about how you managed in, in such a kind of uh, a time of deep loss yeah. and sadness? Because um, I think obviously it's helpful for people to, who may well be going through that mm. to see what kind of processes that you yeah. put in place. If I'm being honest, I don't think I managed very well initially. Um, my parents are Ghanaian. Um, my dad was kind of typical Ghanaian man, didn't really talk much unless he was like, telling me to do something or telling me off. But I never doubted his love for me. I'm the firstborn as well, which is another factor in how I responded. But I was stiff upper lip, keep it moving, got to look after the, the family. Um, obviously on the day it happened, everyone be sad, cry, but um, life has to go on in the sense that I, I can't afford to let this break me because a lot of people are relying on me and then I think the conditioning from growing up in the area that I grew up in is no one really wants to be like the moist guy or the victim or you want to be able to make the choice to be strong and strength looked like um yeah this can't affect me in a way that my life goes down the pan but I gotta keep it moving and so I tried to but about three months after had a bit of a breakdown and cried while I was away in America and it was like the kind of ugly like uncontrollable tears I'm an ugly cry I'm not gonna lie um but are after you, I cried sport, right? so that must happen I've quite never cried, cried I never yeah. cried at football one time I cried at football when Luis Suarez handballed it and Ghana <laughs> yeah, got eliminated I we all cried that <laughs> one, but yeah. um but after I cried I felt like a massive release and a sense of freedom and in a way because I had lost my dad I lost a lot of fear because I thought you know life's it's just here today gone tomorrow so I can't afford to be at the beck and call of people's perceptions and then I just said yo it's fine to be vulnerable man it's fine to to shed tears it's fine to put things in place to help you deal with your emotions properly and so the main thing I realized is you know when people are like ah oh, just talk about it man like just share what you're going through it's not necessarily that we don't want to do that sometimes it's that we don't have the tools and so I had to learn what the tools were I had to learn to try and use different methods of communicating um if I'm not like what 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 type of because I because I think this is really helpful because I still believe particularly in black and brown communities or even just the black community hmm. mental health is a taboo subject yeah but I remember my grandma who's an amazing woman saying do you know what? Black people haven't got time to be depressed. <laughs> just gonna crack on, which That's sounds yeah, mad, but yeah. that is often the mentality yeah. which the older generation would operate. That's so true, man. Yeah, when I think about my dad, I'm like, he probably didn't have time to think about that stuff because he's trying to make rent that month or whatever it was. But for me, I learned that um, writing things down was really helpful for me. Um, people would always say, talk about it. And I always receive that as verbally but I'm a slow processor and for some reason I can get out my thoughts a lot more clearer when I write things down. So I started to write down my feelings and then I would relay it to the people in my life that I know care about me. So there's, cause it's quite, it's a vulnerable thing to share what you're going through. So I thought, who are the people in my life that have shown that they're loyal, that they love me unconditionally, that have been there for years on years. Those people obviously love me. So these are the people that I'm gonna confide in started to do that they started to ask questions and um i'm not the best at it but it helped me process my thoughts another massive thing was starting counseling 
or therapy. I think you might have actually introduced me no, to my second one because my first one was dead. I didn't like her. <laughs> it's a bit like dating, isn't it? You've got to try and find the right one. But. I haven't dated for about <laughs> 23 years, so I don't know. But yeah, I, I, but no, you're right. You got you, you do need to find, I mean, I think that's a massive point. And I do remember introducing you to one of those um, therapists. Mm. But yeah, it, you do got, you got to find the right mix and combo. You right? do. But then it takes a while to build the rapport. And then I realised there's so many things that go into it. Number one, when you're coming from a place where, yo, don't snitch, don't tell anyone what you're going through, right. and there's some random person that you've never met asking you these questions about your life, yeah. first of all, what are you, are you sure you're not going to tell anyone this? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah, so that, that trust needs to be built. And then secondly, I was fortunate that I could afford to go to a counsellor privately and pay money. But when, what annoys me the most, yeah, Obviously, I can say this on this com in this conversation, but might be on like a TV station, a news channel. Oh, why don't people just go counselling? Like, why would they make it sound so easy? But if you're a you coming from where I'm coming from, so much effort you got to put your name on the list. Then you got to wait for them to have availability. You might wait a few months. They send you a letter. Come in. You go in. They got bare people to get through. So you're in for like 15 minutes. And you don't even get the opportunity to build the rapport and make it a consistent thing because the, the healthcare system holistically is broken. And when it's broken, the most marginalized people lose out. So when people say, just go counseling, I'm like, fam, you're making it sound so easy. It's not that easy for everyone. Yeah, and I think it's a really great segue into the work that we do because mm. what we aim with our Therapeutic Intervention for Peace program is to try and make well-being and mental health services accessible hmm. particularly for young people for all the things you've just said there unfortunately there's so many waiting lists hmm. um, we've worked with young people who unfortunately wanted to have that level of support couldn't get it and then a few months later unfortunately lost their lives hmm. so it's it's absolutely true what, what you're saying it's not accessible and if we're going to be honest a lot of um the type of therapists which are made available are not what we would call culturally sensitive. Yeah, I was going to say that because I guess foundationally the the themes of what makes someone healthy are transferable. But if I'm talking to my counsellor about a madness on the roads and she has no context, no understanding of how that code works, she's only going to be able to help me a little bit. She might give me the primary tools, but having someone that gets it a little bit more, mm. I feel makes a huge difference. Yeah, I think, um, yes, basically, I, I agree. Did, I can't remember the timeline, so did you lose your, your father and then write your book? Or was that kind of like just before that? Because I feel like what came out in your book, you have to remind mm -hmm. everybody the title and stuff like that. But. Yeah. I, I was in the process of writing a book that, no, I wrote a book before my dad passed, but it's not my favourite book that I've written. That was about just a bit um, biographical. The one that I wrote after my dad passed was called Unspoken Toxic Masculinity, How I Faced the Man Within the Man. And that was about how the experience of losing my dad triggered all these thoughts around mental health um, 
and made me explore it more and the idea that a young person whatever race really needs to be you know strong and barbaric and hench go gym and that lift 100 kg that you do um that's not what makes a real man um and exploring that conversation but i actually was quite reluctant because the mental health conversation is interesting when it comes to the arts because now if you mention mental health you've automatically got an audience so i feel like it's become like a strategic thing that people talk about even if it's not authentic <clears throat> to them so i was quite reluctant but yeah i thought it could help people. and that's an interesting point that how things which are quite serious mm. can turn into an industry yeah oh, of course yeah and that's it's quite scary right that mm. you, i mean i think we can talk about many things if you mention particular aspects of diversity mm. or if you you know like you're saying you're talking about mental health you've automatically got an audience mm. um i won't name names but it's, it's probably a good idea it's probably a good <laughs> idea right but w we both know how some resources mm. have come out around this subject and i'm like i'm not even sure you're an expert in that space mm. yet you've, you've you've slapped some of these things on there or mental health labels and stuff and that is actually quite scary and damaging because mm. I've had to realise that there are experts in this in this field, and even in a in a faith context as well. You know, I see it in a church context. Everyone's a mental health expert. Yeah. It's like really. Yeah, I think it depends on your what you say your your goal is. I think when it comes to giving advice, yeah. we have to be very careful because I liken it to if imagine you go to doctors and you ask him a question and. You see, man, googling the answer, bro. <laughs> you're going to be worried, isn't it? <laughs> but if you want to share yeah. your lived experience without offering advice and share some of the tools that helped you, yeah. then yeah, go for it. I think more of those conversations are, are helpful. And also, it's not a one size fits all, man. Mm. But we need a breadth of people talking about this because it just impacts people in different ways. So, we work with young people. Um, our aim is to help those young people who we engage with their well-being everything is in a co-produced co-designed way which means we don't just tell young people this is mm. how you're going to engage with the emotional health mental health mm. conversation you have children yourself what would you say to your younger self young young isaac on the block what would you say particularly in this context of how you're handling how to handle your emotions and your feelings or anything, what would you what would you say? First thing I'd say is um can't remember where I heard this, but look after the puddles before they turn into floods. And I think when you identify an issue, when you identify something that's making you feel sad, angry, confused, when you're struggling with a situation and you bury it under the carpet, it doesn't go away just continues to grow and grow and grow and you will have to come face to face with it someday and that's from times when I or people that I've known have been struggling with anxiety or addiction or bullying whatever it is it just never goes away you have to deal with it and it's always easier to deal with it at the earliest possible point even though that seems really scary because when it gets bigger, it's going to seem even more scary and then even more scary. And you're going to wish, oh, I should have just dealt with it back when it was mm. calm. 
And then the second thing I'd say is a bit of what I said earlier. Think about the people in your life that has that have proven their loyalty to you and be vulnerable with them as early as possible. Don't wait for it to get to the point where you're at a breaking point. And then you realise, oh yeah, they put their arm around me. They was always there for me. I could have shared this earlier. I could have saved myself, you know what I mean, months and years of, of pain. Interesting choice of words, loyalty, because I think how do you discern as a young person that loyalty is dependent on, on, on the on the type of person? So, yeah. So you, like how do you and this is a tricky one, right? Because when you're growing up you're still trying to work out who's who's real, mm. who's bad breed, who's who's you know, who's positive. But some so often I've seen with young people that they're loyal to the wrong people. Yeah. <laughs> and that's kind of caused obviously like drama and, and, and pain. How do you, what advice would you give to any young person watching this around discerning who to engage with and the type of decisions? And it's a big question, so you know. I'm not... I don't know, man. I think the people that influence you in your life or the people that you trust, just think you have to try and discern what their love looks like. Love looks like um, safety, trust. Um, the result of love is like a healthy environment. If you're loyal to someone, for example, that's getting you to sell something that you shouldn't be selling, for example, you might have their respect, you might have their influence, but what, what's that doing to you? Do you know what I'm saying? So I think look at the result of what someone's love looks like. Um, it's a tough question because it's not as easy. No, but that's a but, good point, though, isn't it? I mean, mm. the the idea of examine the fruit of that relationship mm. to then decide whether or not it is actually good or positive. Yeah. Without being judgmental, yeah. <laughs> if somebody's going through something which isn't what you're going through, it's a very yeah unique space to kind of be in. It is and the fruit is not always going to be comfortable. Like how many times have I come to you about something and you've told me a, a truth that wasn't easy to hear, but you bad me up when when you have to bad me up because, like, I'm your guy, innit? And you want the best for me. But I, I just think we've been loyal to people that offer us a lot less. Yeah. So yeah. why would you not give the benefit of the doubt to someone that's, that actually wants good for you? Do you know yeah. what I'm saying? No, that's true. I'll bad you up as well, though, so just be careful, fam. <laughs> you better listen when yeah. I bad you no, up, fam. I, I, no, but this is like, <laughs> I, I, I was going to come out with something really smart and funny, but I do think it's important to have this intergenerational conversation, yeah, yeah, yeah. which I don't think happens enough. Like, mm. yeah, as, as someone who's older, we have this like perception and understanding, like, well, the older guys always get, or the woman's always going to have the wisdom. Whereas I sometimes get annoyed at the older generation who don't want to listen to the younger, where you can learn so much. So I won't quite say that you bad me up, but I definitely there's been moments where I've come to you for advice and you've said, <laughs> yeah, Ben, you know, rock it this way or whatever. I um, agree with that though. My favorite people to spend time with are elderly people because the times are different, but they've been there, done that, yeah. seen it all. And then my kids fan, because they, they live life with such innocence and anything is possible and yeah. we need that as well do you know what I'm saying no absolutely we're coming we're closing but I just it will be bored of me already I'm bored of you <laughs> um, and you know we, I, we've managed not to go into West Ham so it's good but what I, I, I think it'd be silly for not to mention the album because mm. um, I want to 
you just unpack that a little bit because the topic which you'll explain I think actually has the potential to cause a lot of anxiety for young people mm. um, so just unpack the album and just the processes around that and why you did it um, so the album's called The Village Is On Fire and it's inspired by um, something that happened to me in my local area was on my way back from a coffee shop trying to get into my car and there was three white guys standing in front of it that wouldn't let me pass and in a space of about 15-20 seconds one of them one of them ended up throwing coffee in my face punching me in my eye police came and even though I called them for help I didn't appreciate the line of questioning questions like um, have you ever been in trouble with the police before did the guys say anything racist and that particular question made me feel that uh, post George Floyd people might have learned how to behave and what not to say but they haven't necessarily changed like their innermost prejudices um, so after that happened the case was closed they couldn't find the perpetrators I needed a kind of release and closure so I decided to start writing about it my cousin kind of um, encouraged me to do so and the the crux of it is my mum always used to say it takes a village to raise a child in a healthy and safe environment but when the healthcare system that like we've spoken about or the education system or um, the people in charge of protecting young people like the police parents elders don't do their job to the best of their ability it can feel like the village is is burning down um and what are we going to do about it the ideal thing i guess is to look at the people in positions of power um structural power and hope that they would put the things in place necessary for us to move forward but the likelihood is that that's going to be a really slow and grueling process so in the meantime rather than waiting can we look in the mirror and say i'm going to be part of the change that i want to see and it also talks about how we shouldn't just judge people or react to the end result because it would be easy for me to say no those three guys man that was so wrong of them but questions i'm asking is what influences have gone into their lives that result in them seeing someone like me and wanting to start trouble based on how I look. Those are the kind of questions that I want to I wanna ask and try and answer. Yeah, and, that, and it's powerful, um, the bits I have seen and the music you have put out. I think it's interesting you you approached that the last thing you just said, that why are those police officers, why were those police officers the way they are? Why are those people who attach you the way they mm. are. One of the things at Power the Fight is that we very much want to try and equip and train those people in authority to understand the communities and the cultures around us. But the reality is when you've got um, reports like the Casey report, which has recently come out, said the police are institutionally racist, mm. but there's been denial in certain quarters, it does make you kind of feel like, well, how do we move forward? This yeah. is maybe an unfair question, but how do we move forward? In the context of this conversation, one thing I will say in response to that question is I think the institutions like the police need to take their own mental health seriously. So post the attack on myself, I'll come away feeling anxious or have PTSD, for example. My anxiety comes from having coffee thrown in my face, being punched, whatever. If a police officer sees me and automatically thinks, oh, he might have a criminal record. Something's gone on there. 
that's made him feel I don't know fearful of me anxious whatever where does that come from from the police officer does that come from him watching one too many Netflix <laughs> series on what it's meant to be like in the ends does it come from him not having enough interactions with the 95% of law-abiding black people that live in our community they need to look at what mental health um decisions or feelings that they're facing to help them move forward and that doesn't get spoken about enough i think there's stuff happening up there man that yeah. they need to come face to face with well you know being able to just talk to you mental health awareness week and just having a conversation just chopping up with you is always uh, a pleasure and a privilege can Thank i ask you a question before we wrap yeah go for it so in terms of mental health for yourself when Chelsea keep losing week in, week out, what does that what does that do for you? Because a lot of people don't talk about, you know, football and the effects on your on your mental. Because what you're eleventh in the league now, and you go with hope and ambition every week. You're, you know, I see you take your son and that. You go to the games. You're you're fully invested. That how does how's that for you, man? How do you deal with that stuff? So I'm gonna answer this with a serious answer because I can see the smile. Everyone can see your smile, <laughs> but this is a serious point, right? <clears throat> so. Actually, so maybe around November time when Chelsea weren't as bad mm. as they are now, I realised I was too invested <laughs> <laughs> in my team <laughs> and the battle was getting too much. <laughs> and you know, and I know you appreciate this as a West Ham supporter, sometimes you can't watch Match of the Day because it's like, yeah. nah, this is, this, is, this is actually messing up my weekend. Yeah. And my wife be like, what's the matter? And I'm like, oh. You're like eighth, you're eighth match on and that as well. Yeah, you got to sit through the whole thing. No, and, yeah, yeah. 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 The Chelsea not even like the first match or match of the day anymore. It's like we're, we're like second to last, and I'm like, this is hurting me. But then I had to seriously check myself. I was like, why is this impacting my mood so much? Mm. And um, a couple of things happened. I, one, I left some WhatsApp groups because <laughs> <laughs> it's not even that I couldn't take the banter. It was. I just realised that what was coming from me yeah, yeah, yeah. and I was like no nah, hold on as long as I went back to school mm. like, no, I'm letting you know and I'm cussing and I'm like what is wrong with me I spoke to a couple of my friends I was like you know what I love you all but I've got to bounce from the <laughs> seriously because I was like this is, this is mad but then more importantly it was seeing the effect on my son and, and I was like I don't want him to be like me I don't want him to love football so much that it absolutely terrorises mm. his mood and that's what was kind of happening last season What's beautiful then this season, Chelsea are having the worst season in about 25 years and he's just calm. He's just like, ah, oh, it's football, Dad. You know what I mean? And, uh, and that's actually... How old? He, so he's 10. That's and, mad. And I, remember, I remember crying at football games when Listen, I was 10. I was crying at 16 when we lost the cup <laughs> final. So the fact he's just like, you know, it's football. He wasn't like that last season, but mm. I've seen something. So something about anxiety and just even the little things. Yeah. Like, you know, people leaving WhatsApp groups. I know when I left that group, the cusses which was yeah, in right. that group. You can't take you it. Can't take, yeah. can't take it. Man can't take it. He'll be back when Chelsea. But I was just like, nah, this is not healthy. So yeah, tongue in cheek question. But I think for me, sometimes you just got to make tough decisions to some to remove yourself from certain environments, even if it's just banter, mm. if it's playing out and a little bit crazy. That is, that's actually really good. I know it started off as a joke and sorry for all the abuse that I've sent you. <laughs> I think mine's pretty light to be honest. But when you read about um, the effect that um, losing football games has on things like domestic right. violence, 
then it's a very necessary step for some people to to put things in place so they're not as invested if they know that they can't control the emotions off the back of a bad result or a bad season for example Just so no no not saying you obviously <laughs> but you're um, right yeah, yeah. totally it's, a, it's something I don't think we appreciate the small things which can really mm. turn like you said earlier on can turn into bigger things if they're not checked well listen um, it's always a pleasure as I said mental health awareness week it's a big thing thank you for being an ambassador power to fight that's uh, all good but well no I ain't got my invoice has not been paid what's going yeah, on man bro, we, we're not paying you and <laughs> <laughs> you need to understand that that you don't get paid you're meant to make money for us okay I love you lot though man everyone donate to Power to Fight man um, great charity uh, I love them even if I didn't know Ben I'd support them and yeah man let's keep giving young people futures because they're entitled to it they deserve it amen thank you bro